Welcome to the Happiest Ever After podcast. I'm your host, Tatiana Robertson. And yes, you heard right, happy-ish. Because this podcast is not about chasing the fairy tale. We've seen behind the curtain and most of us are ready to hop off the hamster wheel of perfection. If you've ever wondered, how do I end up in this life? How can I change it? What do I want from life? Is there more? Then this podcast is for you. The fairy tale may not be real. That's the good news because life is an amazing adventure and it's time for you to pick up the pen and write your own story. So let's get started and see where this journey takes us. I'm so glad that you have joined us for this conversation. And today I have the most amazing guest. I got to speak to her a few weeks back and I just knew I wanted to have her on the podcast. Susie is a mindset and empowerment coach who helps people feel better about themselves and their lives. She specializes in helping smart overachievers reduce anxiety and self-doubt in order to feel happier and accomplish the goals that really matter to them. So she's originally from San Diego, California, and she's a first-generation Mexican-American who became the first person in her family to go to college and earn an Ivy League PhD. So she's got all the street cred as well as all of the education. And thanks to life coaching, she has removed mental and emotional blocks that that had held her back. She quit her corporate job, and she now gets to help others create lives that they love. And I'm so excited to have Susie here today because I just know you have such a powerful story. You shared some of that story with me previously, and I can hardly wait for you to share it with others because we all start at different points and it doesn't mean that's where we have to stay and that we really can be, you know, the master of our own fate or the captain of the ship or whichever analogy works for you, but you have a powerful story and, and such amazing wisdom. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Tatiana. I am so happy to be here and I love the mission of your podcast. Oh, thank you. I feel like we are truly aligned. So I know for a lot of people, especially through social media, everybody's live looks so amazing and perfect. And you have a PhD from a highly reputable university and you have all of this, you know, all of the things that would say you must have the most successful life and the most beautiful life. But I know that you shared with me that that wasn't exactly so. Can you share some of your story? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I do have a great life, but I also can tell you that it's not the life I anticipated I would have because of where I came from. So as I mentioned to you before, when we had our conversation, I did come from poverty. I am a first generation Mexican-American born in San Diego, and I was raised by my Mexican grandmother who only had a third grade education. My mom, unfortunately, died before I turned two, and I there there is some additional trauma in that past that I'll just give a little bit of a trigger warning here, if that's okay. So there is intergenerational trauma as well as uh, developmental trauma for me because my mother, she was raped. She was raped by her landlord. And so then she was pregnant with me. And so what happened is she was told she should have an abortion because she had a weak heart. When she had grown up in Mexico, she had rheumatic fever and that caused a lot of heart damage. So she was always very weak. So they said she should have an abortion. 
And so one of the things that my mom chose is no, it, the baby is innocent. So she chose to have me. So something that's very meaningful to me when I think about she really chose to have me. And then as a result, when I was born, she did have a stroke and then she had another stroke that killed her before I turned two. So part of the background then is sort of that violence that she experienced. They also had hard lives in Mexico that led them to come to this country. One of the things that I have come to understand more and more in the past years, I've come to understand my own trauma history is that in utero, when somebody has a lot of that kind of stress and she was ill, that it kind of creates nervous system issues for the infant, for the fetus. So I kind of was born already traumatized. Yeah. And then we had like other things that happened, just, you know, being poor and things like that. And my grandmother was kind of a, <laughs> she had her own trauma. So she was a little bit hard on us. Uh, for anybody who's Mexican or has heard of La Chancla, there's always the shoe if you ever watch the movie, sorry, I'm blanking out on the name of the movie, the, the Coco, the grandmother even has the shoe and it's like this joke, but that's something that you grow up with, at least in my culture, where, where that's just part of it. And you don't really realize until you leave the culture there. I'm like, holy cow, my grandma used to hit me all the time <laughs> with the shoe. So yeah, so those are the things that I came from. And one of the things is that the my saving grace was that I was really smart. And my older sister, she used to play school with me. So when I was in, when I was four years old and I went to pre-K, I already knew how my alphabet, my colors, my numbers, and I could spell my name. And I think like she just really instilled this amazing desire to learn. And so that became my escape that it was like, oh, I'm really smart and I can do stuff in school. So that's kind of what led me out of the barrio and out of that area into academia. Wow. And this is one of those things is we find our gift and we attach our worthiness and we can really excel in those areas of our gifts. And, and like you, mine was also academics, and particularly with math. And when I look at back at some of my, my mentors through school, they were the math teachers mm. who kept me going during really difficult times because these people who weren't relatives, weren't friends were the people who would encourage me, give me all of the support and care that I, I wished for in other places. And from your story, do you feel like that's what led you with the academics? Absolutely. I do think that when you're not getting at home that kind of encouragement and unconditional love, if you're lucky, you find it someplace else. And, and the beautiful thing about it is that I did. I found that I was good at school. I loved to learn. But it also became the thing that I thought was the only thing I was good at and that I would pursue forever and ever and ever and keep trying to get the next golden ring, the next golden ring, keep getting that pat on the head, like, see, you're smart enough now, you're good enough. And so, of course, I went to an Ivy League and got a PhD and got a tenure track job because I thought that was that was the only thing that I could be good at. And that's what I was meant to be doing. So it was a blessing, but it also became a little bit of a something that I had to do. It didn't feel like a choice. It felt like in order for me to survive, I need to do this thing. I need to be successful. I'm on my own and I have to do this. And this is the only thing I'm good at. Do you feel that sometimes when we do these things and for other people, it might be athletics or mm -hmm. music, but when we pursue it to the abandonment of all others, did you feel like it was about filling a hole of love and worthiness? 
Yeah, I, it definitely was. And but I didn't realize it until I started running into issues and then I started to have self-doubt. So I didn't have any questions about my self-worth as long as people outside were telling me I was great. So high school, I was great. College, I was great. And then I graduated from college and I got a job in a law firm as a law clerk. And that was the first sign of trouble. (laughs) I was so anxious and stressed out, didn't know how I was supposed to do the things. And I was asking lots of questions and I was just like paralyzed and I got fired. That was my first experience of like being smart is not enough to get you a decent job. Like, I think I just had this this thought in my head, like, oh, my God, I don't have street smarts. I don't have EQ. I just have IQ. There's something wrong with me. I need to find the thing that's going to make me feel whole again. And so then what happened was then I was like, what's the only thing I was good at was school. And then I was like, oh, I can be a college professor. So that's when I pursued that. You know, I applied, I got all these scholarships, I got in, and then I showed up and I definitely felt like I wasn't sure I belonged because all these other people just had a lot more knowledge. They had more money. They had, they they just felt comfortable in their skin. And I just felt like I totally didn't belong. I'm the girl that in one of the classes that was very challenging uh, on like, uh, it was very like high theory because my I went to Brown for a PhD in English and there was a lot of Foucault and all sorts of different kinds of theoretical approaches that I wasn't familiar with. I was literally in tears in a class trying to explain myself because I was so frustrated and people were just staring at me like, what is her problem? And I had people afterwards say, okay, you're not, you shouldn't cry because they're going to look at you as weak. And I'm like, I'm not upset. I'm just angry that I that I can't explain myself. So I really struggled initially, but over time, I, I, I just believed that it's like, I have to be able to do this. So I did. And that's kind of where it went. And that takes a lot of courage, a lot of courage and fortitude. And you just keep pushing because that's where you think it has to go. That's yeah, that's where the fulfillment is. That's what I believed was the only thing I could do to save myself. So it never felt like happiness you know, thinking about your podcast, it wasn't like, oh, look at me, I'm being successful and achieving. It was like, I come from poverty, nobody's going to save me, I have no safety net, I have to be able to be successful at this. And then I finally finished the dissertation and finished when it was like, this is my last year of funding, I have to finish it. So it never felt the way you could imagine like, oh, yeah, I'm so smart. And I did it. It always felt like I was behind the eight ball. And I am proud of myself, but I also now understand the mindset that drove me there was, you know, was a survival thing. It was like, I have to survive through this and I'm just going to do it. And I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to. The thought that if we continue on this path, if I just keep doing this because I have a God-given talent, so it is my obligation to fully utilize it. And I'm going to do all the things and I'm going to reach that that highest level and then I will be happy. Yes. (laughs) And then you get there and you realize that you still have to make your bed like you did yesterday. You're going to have to do it again tomorrow. And is this the thing that really makes your heart sing? So there you are. You have a PhD. You've done it. You've done all the things. But it sounds like you were full of a lot of self-doubt. And maybe you can tell us about that. So my first job, I got a I, ha- I got a postdoc at Duke, which is how I ended up in North Carolina. 
it was teaching uh, university first year writing programs where every single first year throughout the entire university has to take one of these classes. It was one of those things where I had so much self-doubt that I would be paralyzed in designing my syllabi. I would be paralyzed in designing what am I doing in the class? And so everything was kind of off the hook, the cuff. I was just, I just felt really like I did not belong there either. And in the end, <laughs> you're having, you're having this very interesting person who gets fired from there too, because they tell her after two years, they're like, we're not going to renew you for three years. You're just going to get a one year. And I was the only person, so it wasn't technically a firing. It was more like the contract was after two years, you either get another three-year contract or a one-year. And so I got a one-year contract. So I knew that was the year I had to find another job. And really what it was is it's like, I'm really smart and I'm really engaging, but I was always paralyzed in making decisions because I didn't trust myself. Because I'd, I'd never been taught to teach academic writing. I didn't have any pedagogical experience. That That's one of the things that you can get a PhD in English at Brown, but they're not going to teach you how to teach because it's not, it's not that kind of program. They're just teaching you how to be a researcher. So coming and trying to learn how to teach people, you know, nowadays, if I, the person I am now, if I showed up, I'd hit the ground running and I'd be awesome. But I just had so much self-doubt. Like I just still kept thinking, I don't belong here. And nobody's showing me and I have to figure this out and they're going to find me out. So with that mindset, that's what ended up happening. And then luckily, though, then I got a tenure track job at Bowling Green State. So I moved to Ohio and then the same thing happened. I mean, like no matter where you go, there you are. I still have that same mindset of like, I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to find me out. So, of course, that's what shows up. And they didn't fire me. I left. I decided the boyfriend that I had met while I was in Durham, we decided to get married. And that's when I came back to Durham. And so I just left academia. It felt like constant failure. Like on paper, I looked so amazing. <laughs> but, in, you know, and I just felt like, oh, my God, it's like I, you know, I've come so far from the barrio and everybody thinks I'm doing great, but I'm such a fraud. And I'm, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I can't do it right. Is kind of how I felt. What you said, though, wherever I go, there I am, because that's it. And now when you look back, like you just said, if I went there now, I'd hit the ground running mm -hmm. because the thing that was there was that self-doubt, that feeling of I can't I, I don't know how to do this. Somebody else could do this better. And there's always mm -hmm. someone that can do something better than us. But what we're able to do can be good enough as well. So yeah. tell us about, because obviously there were some pretty monumental changes and I am a huge proponent of education, post-secondary education, reading, educating yourself, but there's certain things that fit better with that. So you have the PhD, you have all the technical academic, but that wasn't what got you here today. That was a part of your journey. So what was the shift that happened inside that broke that cycle for you? So I had two major shifts. And so I had been doing therapy when I was in grad school. I even did EMDR before I even knew I had trauma. It would have been nice if my therapist had said, oh, I think you have trauma. <laughs> and that's why we're doing EMDR. I just kind of did it without really knowing. And then they prescribed Zoloft to me because they said, oh, you you really, you just have a dysthymia, which is this low-grade depression. I'm like, okay, sounds good. And that helped a bit, but it didn't really ever make me feel happy. I was just always anxious and insecure. 
showing up anxious and doing the job and hoping that I wouldn't get found out for most of my life. And then when I was at Duke, I met a colleague who was really quite, she was just very inspirational. And she was like, oh my God, I, I want to be like her. And what it was about her is like, she was very confident. She was very clear about saying what was so for her, setting boundaries, just like really like, oh my God, I want to be her. I'll name drop her and then later I'll tell her that she's on this podcast. So her name is Anora Horton. She now lives in Vermont and does some amazing nonprofit work. But anyway, so when she was here being an academic at Duke, though, I asked her about, you know, I told her I admired her and she told me about a program called Landmark Forum. And so I did that program. It's like a three day weekend and what I got out of that was a certain transformation where I gained awareness of some of the sort of my biggest underlying self-sabotaging thought. And the, what it was is that the feeling that I didn't belong and how it had come because of what happened to my mother, that I shouldn't be here because, you know, I sh shouldn't have been raped and I shouldn't be here, basically, was the whole thought. Basically, I just had this huge chip on my sh shoulder, A, around white people because he was white technically a Polish Jew who survived the Holocaust, which is another part of that interesting story. <laughs> but, but it was so interesting because it was just this thing that I didn't even realize. I had this huge belief that was hidden to my view, but I was walking around with it everywhere in the world going, I don't belong here and I hate white people. I don't belong here and I hate white people. So you can imagine being at Brown <laughs> University or at Duke or walking around with that. Like, it's like, I, I, in a way, I almost feel like, wow, I'm impressed that I did as well as I did because you're I'm with walking around with those filters. So the Landmark Forum was awesome because it did help me start breaking that down. And then I ended up marrying my husband, who's Southern and white, which is I would never have happened. <laughs> so that was the first shift. But one of the things is that the, the Landmark Forum was helpful for finding an initial transformation kind of thing, but it wasn't something I could ongoingly practice and change my thinking. And so the second big one was life coaching, where I finally learned and understood that basically our brains, our bodies, our nervous system are designed in a particular way. And so all the habitual thoughts I have are normal and that they're not a sign of my being a, an eight failure or there's something wrong with me. Everybody deep down, if you get down to it, thinks they're unworthy. And really the reason for that isn't psychological, really. <laughs> it has to do with evolutionary design. Mammals have to live in groups. And basically, if you don't try to fit in with the rest of the cavemen, you're going to get kicked out of the cave. And once I really understood that that's how our brains evolved and that we're always trying to fit in. And so we're always scared of getting kicked out of the group. Then it was like, oh, this is just my brain trying to protect me. And I can actually change my unconscious thoughts. I can redirect them. I, I have all this power that I didn't know I had. And that was what was really missing. Like, I just didn't know how to change it because you can read all the mindset books in the world. Like Dale Carnegie in the 30s said, it's how you think about things that changes how you feel about them. But just because somebody says it and just because you know it's true, doesn't mean you know how to do it. And through life coaching, that's what I learned. And so that that's basically what blew my life out of the water. And I left my corporate job and now I'm building a business as a life coach. My marriage is incredible. My life is amazing. I mean, it's just, that's the thing. You can change your thoughts. 
Oh, wow. And everything you've just said, everything you've just said, <laughs> that has been such an eye opener for me. Oh my gosh. Don't you like someone that had told us that when we were little? <laughs> why, why didn't I learn this instead of home ec? You know, all that time I spent learning how to fill out a check properly. And I know anyone that's 10 years younger than us and younger than that won't even know what I'm talking about. They're not going to know what a check is. But writing out like how to fill out a check properly. Well, that's that's not doing me any good nowadays. Like, who do you not do online banking with? But there's something so powerful, so powerful about realizing that your brain is telling you what it's telling you because that's the way it was built to work. And what is it that they say? I've heard this saying. The brain makes a great servant, but a lousy master. Ooh, that's a good one. And it's that idea that if we let our brain, our conscious self run rampant over our life without an understanding of how it works and how it has its own, it's not a very smart organ. (laughs) It's like none of us would say, oh, let's let the liver take over now. It functions the way that it functions and we have certain capabilities but truly whatever we say to ourselves it will think of that as like a, a scientific experiment okay let's see if we can prove her right so every time we say i don't fit in mm-hmm. it will show you evidence of how you don't fit in because it says oh this is what she's interested in seeing mm-hmm. and so really getting to uncover our beliefs and challenge the thoughts that we have because beliefs are just thoughts thoughts that we have over and over beliefs are thoughts you've thought over and over and over again (laughs) exactly that's exactly what they are and that doesn't mean that they are correct it doesn't mean that they're healthy for us it doesn't mean that they're going to further us, they're not actually telling us something that is a fact. When your thoughts became beliefs that said you don't belong, that doesn't mean that you don't belong. There was no reason that you didn't. You were with your peers in an area. And if you didn't want to be there of your own choosing because you wanted something more for your life, that is a powerful thing. And so to have walked away and to have had this opportunity What was it about the life coaching that really changed things for you? Now you recognize. Yeah, of course I still, because so here's the thing, you know, 95% of our thoughts on every given day are going to be default. And that's actually by design because the brain or animal brains are decided to seek pleasure, avoid pain, expend as little energy as possible. That's like the motivational triad because that's what all animals do in order to survive. So most a lot of your brain is really designed to keep the organism alive. It doesn't mean that it's going to keep it happy, but it's going to keep it alive. And so there's a lot of energy expenditure when you have to keep using your prefrontal cortex, of which humans are the only animal that has that, to keep trying to make different decisions. That's why we want that part of our brain to habitually decide what's most important. So like you said, If the brain is trying to protect you because it learned that there's social danger all around you, you're not going to belong. So you need to keep paying attention to see whether people still like you or not. And that's going to make you anxious. But the brain is doing that because it believes it's protecting you. Yeah. Because you you need to survive. So that's never going to go away. The question is, do you choose to believe it every time it comes up or not? 
And basically your ability to rise above it increases the more you notice when it's happening and opt to believe something else. So it's not that it'll never stop saying it to you. It's that you decide that the brain's lying to you or it's wrong. It's trying to protect you. Guess what? It's not actually a problem. I'm good. I'm not going to get kicked out of the cave. Move on. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my gosh. It's that moment of realization when you're like, wait a minute. Uh, that's, that's, that's not the case. Or, or I, I don't need to believe that. Yeah. My worth is not determined by these other people. And there's, there's more that I have to do. Yeah. And the thing is, you can, you can interrupt that at any point and you get better at interrupting it faster and faster, the more you do, but it's always great when you catch it and then cheer yourself on for catching it. So for example, I could be, you know, I'm doing more social media, say, and say I make a post and I get zero likes and I think, oh my God, I'm not good enough. And I worked so hard on that post. Now, you know, nobody liked it. You know, maybe I should question my whole existence and whether I could really ever be successful as a coach. And I could go through that for 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 days. But the minute I notice that that's what I'm doing, and then I go, oh my God, I'm thinking I don't belong. That's all that is. I go, yay me. I noticed it. Oh, I'm just thinking I don't belong, but it's not, I'm, I'm not getting kicked out of the cave. It's just a social media post. It's probably the algorithm. Move on. You know, that's one of the things that I think is super important is that the brain's going to do what the brain does. And any moment you catch it, it's a victory. And you cheer yourself on because that's how you train your brain to look for it. I wish everybody could see you like the way that you had your like hands up and stuff. And I think that's going to be my new thing. Nobody's kicking me out of the cave. No one's going to kick you out of the cave, but don't beat yourself up because you thought so. So when my grandmother passed, I felt a lot of grief, but I also felt a lot of shame. So I felt grief because I loved her and I missed her. And I felt shame because I couldn't have been, I couldn't be with her as much as I could have. And I wish I could have changed the last years of her life. So the grief is the first arrow. That's the real pain that we have to feel because we love somebody and we grieve. But the second arrow is then when you have the thought, oh, I didn't do enough. That's optional pain that you do not need to have. So when you can interrupt the second arrow, that, it, that, that doesn't need to be inflicted after the first arrow, that's actually how you create a better life because now you're, rather than, than avoiding the grief by cycling and shame and recrimination, you can just grieve and love them and then move on. I love the analogy from the teaching of the Buddha and the two arrows. And that first arrow, this is why it's happyish ever after, because we can't stay permanently happy. And if we try to shut out pain and sorrow or anger or any of the feelings, feelings are feelings. And some are not good and some are not bad. They just have different impacts on us. But if we try to shut down one because we say it's bad, then we end up closing them all. So we have to expect that first arrow is all the things that we can't control, Mm -hmm. everything that happens in our day-to-day life, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, an accident, an illness. Those are things that, you know, they happen and, and we can't. But the second arrow is all within our control. And that's the pain that we cause to ourself in response to the first arrow. Yeah. 
that has been a powerful learning for me. And I think it's one of those things that I keep having to remind myself of. But just becoming aware of that is such a mind shifter, you know, just recognizing, am I perpetuating and hanging on to that first arrow? Am I the one who's now taken the arrow out of my body and now I'm stabbing myself with it over (laughs) and over again? How is that making things better? What's funny is that here's the thing that I've been uncovering for myself, because like you said, it's an ongoing journey. We have human experiences. Circumstances are never going to be perfect for us to feel great all the time. And that's why we feel fear and sadness and disgust and anger. You know, you know, when we were talking before a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how the six basic emotions are joy, sadness, fear, anger, disgust and surprise and surprise. And, you know, five of those are in the movie Inside Out by Pixar. They didn't put surprise in there. But if you look, Joy is the only one that's remotely good. And because the others are super important for survival, for survival of the species, you need all those other ones. And they're just kind of hardwired in us. So anytime something happens that isn't what you hoped would happen, and, you know, most of the times it's like our circumstances, we don't have control over them. I'm going to give you an example. Today, I was sitting doing some work and I had to go to a meeting and my two cat boy cats were chasing each other and they knocked over a lamp and they knocked over a plant and they knocked over a Kleenex box and there was like dirt everywhere. And I was so mad. And initially, then I got mad at myself for being mad. And I'm like, wait, why am I being mad? I'm mad. This is annoying. And so, you know, so I drove them away and I cleaned up and I was mad and I let myself be mad. And now I'm like, okay. (laughs) I think we could have an entire podcast on the shame that we put on ourselves for feeling our feelings that are totally natural. Yes. (laughs) Right. Like it's you're here for that one. I'm I'm in for that one for sure. I wanted to ask you, because I want to share something else with your audience, if you think it'll work, because I want to share this diagram that I learned from my mentor in school. And what I can do is I can give it, give you a drawing of it and you can just put it at the bottom of the podcast if that works for you. But I was going to show it to you on the whiteboard. Okay. Yeah, because because I think this is this kind of this was kind of the mind blowing thing that I learned. So what I'm going to, and I'm going to describe it for the audience as I do it. I'm I'm making a big circle and, and then I'm going to cut it in half with a line, a vertical line. And the circle represents all of our feelings that we, you know, all of the feelings that we can have in the world that we feel in any, you know, in our lives at any given moment. And the circle The half of the circle that's on the left, we're going to call it positive emotion, however you want to define it. And the half of the circle that's on the right is going to be negative emotion. And what I learned that I understood, now we don't have to quibble about exact percentages. This is kind of more of a way to understand um, emotions and what happens is that Let's assume life is 50-50. So half of the time, you're going to feel positive emotion. And half of the time, you're going to feel negative emotion. So you might have all that joy or pride, et cetera. But here you might have anger, sad, um, fear, disgust, 
by the way, disgust is the it is what shame falls under. It's self-disgust, if oh. you ever thought about that. But so what happens is that if you want to be happy-ish, you want to embrace all of it. But what happens is that people will say, oh, no, I'm supposed to be happy all the time. So rather, so they try to focus on only that left side of the circle, the positive emotion. And they're like, I don't want to feel the negative emotion on, on this right side, the anger, the sad, the fear, the disgust. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to add, I'm now adding another bit of circle to extend out that right side. And this is the area where we avoid. So this is where we drink, eat, smoke, shop, sex, Netflix. Um, and in my coaching school, they call we call it buffering because we're trying to create a buffer. And so rather than feeling the anger, sad, fear, disgust, negative emotions, we try to create what seems to be positive emotion by avoiding the negative. So we try to make ourselves feel better. But what that ends up doing is that ends up having these negative consequences. You gain weight, you lose all your money, you don't get stuff done. And so what ends up happening is this whole 50% of the circle just expanded by an extra 100%. And now you're feeling way more negative emotion because in avoiding that 50% negative and then adding all the buffers, you just compounded your negativity and you make it impossible to feel the joy and the pride. So the way that I now understand to create more happiness in your life is to stop avoiding those feelings stop buffering, and then you feel them, and then you get the full 50-50 of your life experience. To me, that was the most profound thing, that it's like it is so worth it, like in the end, to feel your negative emotion, because wow. that gets you to the other side. To me, this, it just makes so much sense. It makes so much, because you spend you naturally will have what we term as negative emotions. We've attached a negative connotation to these particular emotions. And in avoiding them, we end up not wanting to deal with them. So we prolong or draw them out. You know, you've got to take the Band-Aid off and it's good and stuck on there. And you can take it off slowly, slowly ripping each hair out <laughs> as you're taking the Band-Aid off. Or you can just go and let it be and let it continue on its healing way. You're just drawing out those feelings and, and burying them somewhere. That means that they aren't fully expressed. And when you can't, then you spend so much time controlling. Like, I think we have a finite amount of energy. And if we're mm -hmm. using our internal energy to suppress and defer and avoid, then what we aren't spending our energy on is exploring and investigating and experiencing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I agree 100% because what happens is we're trying to control that right side of the circle, trying to control not feeling those things. And that takes a lot of energy. 
because it, it just sits trapped in your body. And there's, you know, trauma studies and studies on po the polyvagal theory and in somatic experiencing, like working with the nervous system, the nervous system needs literally to have not, not only should you do it to be happier, but it's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to like feel the energy and get it out of us and then you move on. But thanks to our prefrontal cortex, we've been, I don't know if it's the prefrontal, but I will say that because we've been socialized into thinking you have to be happy all the time, you shouldn't be feeling that stuff. If you're feeling those things, those negative emotions, you're weak. Part of it is, you know, patriarchal and capitalist culture, I guess. That it absolutely is. Because, because if you feel anger, sad, fear, disgust, you're not a good producer. <laughs> yes. Or we're being sold something. If you feel angry yes. right now, here's some calming tea and some bubble baths. If yes. you're feeling sad right now, here's a pick me up and here's some exercise equipment. Yes. If you're feeling fear. Here's how you can can lean in and try and invest in. Yes. yes. Absolutely. That, that whole other side, the reason we go off and buffer with other things to feel better so we don't feel anger, sad, fear, disgust is because we've been socialized to say, hey, those feelings are bad. You should only feel joy and happiness. So let me sell you something. <laughs> To make you feel better. But it's not really truly joy. It's it's more desire, like short-term desire that is fulfilled, but then you feel empty after. And then that's why you have to keep doing it. How would you describe real joy or pride? How What does that look or feel like compared to the sort of joy that we're being sold? Well, that's a, I love that question. For me, I feel true joy when I feel gratitude and when, when, and when I feel proud, part of the mindset is the more I practice looking at wins, for example, you know, cause my brain wants to always tell me that, that I suck, <laughs> but you don't when, at all. <laughs> yeah. We, well, we don't as human beings, we're all amazing and awesome. And we also have anger, sadness, fear, disgust, shame, a sense of unworthiness, but that doesn't mean we suck. That just means we've been programmed evolutionarily for to survive. But what we do is in order to create true joy, it comes from giving yourself the reassurance and the self-love. I'm not a very woo, like, oh, inner child kind of person, but I will say that there's something to this idea that when you that true joy and true pride are come when you start talking to yourself the way you wish your parents had talked to you, the way you want your kids to be talked to, when you actually tell yourself, oh, of course you're mad that those cats knocked over that stuff. It's okay. Okay, you feel better now? All right, let's go clean it up. You know, when you talk to yourself that way, and then when you, you know, when you set a goal and you're willing to fail and you talk to yourself, well, that didn't work out. And that's okay. And it doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you're learning. What can we learn from it? Let's try again. Those are the things that create the joy and the pride and the happiness and the positive feelings. Are you talking to yourself the way you wished your parents had talked to you? I love that. And I believe that different people have different ways of talking about, you know, whether it's inner child or yin and yang. Some people are very practical and these are the roots of how our brain works and other people will come from it from a more maybe a metaphysical. And there's also the psychological side, like people who, you know, in psychology, they're going to talk about it, those disassociated parts of yourself that you think are weak that you don't want to deal with. I actually like calling it baby Susie. 
Oh, <laughs> for me, it's baby Susie. Uh, so I have a little bit of that, even though I know there's not technically a baby in me, but there is definitely a part of me that feels scared. And I'm the adult that can take care of her now. And I think that's beautiful. It's whatever works for you, whatever resonates with you and how you take information. It's the same as being like a visual learner or auditory or kinesthetic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's what works for you and how you do. And when I get the nasty voice, you know, in my head, then I'll be like, okay, well, you can just shut up now, Rebecca. You know, she has a different name (laughs) and she's kind of nasty. I love that you share the name. And she can, and she can just stop it now. Cause I, I don't need that. And there's nothing productive about it, but that's taken a lot of like, I've, I've spent years, years in therapy. I don't think I'll ever be a finished product. I found everything that you have just shared now, just so powerful. I hope others hear this because when you describe it this way, it just makes so much sense to me. Glad. I I really, like, I've always been like, emotions are just emotions. And then we have a positive connotation to them or a negative connotation to them. And then once we give them this negative, then there's this whole cultural overlay. Okay, we've identified the negative. Now let's problem solve our way out of it. Mm. Because we can't experience negative, but they're just emotions. Yeah. And they just need to be because there is a time for sadness. Yeah. They just need to be felt. And they're they're there to be felt because there's some nervous system stuff going on. It gets goes in through your body and it just needs to whoosh out. Yeah. It needs to process. And I've learned that from many years of struggling. And I am aware now that I will have a physical response. I've had chronic bronchitis for almost my entire adult life. And I have not had bronchitis since my divorce. Wow. I want to say one thing about that is that, you know, one of the whole things, as I mentioned, you know, I discovered this past year that I had this trauma and it is, you know, trauma is once you have a nervous system dysregulation that happens in response to things that are not necessarily a threat, but which your brain now thinks of as a threat because it was trained to do that. We're complex organisms. There's all this cortisol and all these different things that are happening in your brain and your body. And when you try to hide all that, when you try to hide all that negative emotion and you don't try to experience it, it it has a physical cost. So, you know, so for example, there's been correlations between, you know, sexual assault and certain kinds of of disorders and, you know, like Hashimoto's and things like that. Like literally your body is turning on you because you have all these really unresolved things that are still trapped in your body. And I'm happy to send resources like links that people could go look to and you can just add it at the bottom of the podcast because I've been learning more about that because I was somebody who was not in my body at all for most of my life and learning how to feel that it takes practice, but it's totally doable. And it's a wonderful journey to healing yourself physically, but also like just emotionally. And it makes such an impact, not just on yourself, but all the people around you when you can feel that you're not suppressing yourself, but you can just honor who you are. It makes a positive wake for everyone around you because then it makes it possible for them to be themselves. And that's one of the things I love about the work we do, you know, you and I, Tatiana. Oh, and it's so true. When we do it for ourselves, we make it possible for those around us. Mm -hmm. It's a gift to do your own work is a gift to those around you. It 
it's a gift to your family. It's a gift to your loved ones. It's a gift to your friends. It opens opportunities for them to be their true authentic self, to be able to go on their own journey of self-actualization. It's the way we stop intergenerational trauma. It is. It really is. For those of the listeners who may have experienced some kind of trauma, you have the power to stop it in you now and not let it keep going to the people around you. Yeah. I have so appreciated having you on the podcast today. So many words of wisdom, tools that you have shared. I'm going to add some of the links to resources in the show notes. And I'm so glad that you could join me today. Thank you, Susie. Thank you, Tatiana. And thank you to anyone listening. I hope this served. Here are a few takeaways from today's discussion. Where you start does not determine where you end up. Everyone has special gifts, but your gifts do not define you. You are worthy in addition to having gifts, not because of them. The need to fit in and belong is hardwired into our brain because our brain's job is to protect us, not to make us happy. And the brain will do what the brain will do, but you have the power to redirect your thoughts. You can see what is happening and opt to believe something else. Things happen in life, and when we are hurt by something, that's like an arrow hitting us, and we can't avoid the arrows of life. But the story we create around the arrow becomes a second arrow, and that is suffering that is not necessary. And finally, we cause ourselves a great deal of suffering by trying to avoid negative feelings. We do this by buffering with shopping, Netflix, alcohol, food, and other forms of distraction. These buffering tools usually have negative consequences, which result in more suffering. It's better to learn to feel your feelings. And I just want to say, if you enjoyed this podcast, it would mean so much if you forwarded it to three friends. Just click the three dots and then click share. You can copy the link and send it via text or however it is that you like to share your podcast. If you post on your stories and you tag me, I'll make a point of resharing it on my stories. In the show notes, you will find a short video with a graphic to explain positive and negative emotions and buffering. There is also a link to Susie's free video course, Stop Overwhelm, as well as resources related to somatic experiencing and nervous system regulation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to hearing back from you and please reach out with any ideas for guests or topics that you would like to hear on Happyish Ever After.